Hello, podcast listeners. This podcast of Asia Rising is brought to you by Latrobe Asia. They've got a public lecture on next week on Tuesday, the 14th of October at 6 p.m. at the State Library of Victoria. The topic will be power, rivalry, and the transformation of Asia. And the speaker will be the host of this podcast, Professor Nick Bisley. You can find out more information at the Latrobe Asia website. That's latrobe.edu.au forward slash Asia. Hope to see you there. Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast where we examine the news, events and general happenings of Asia's states and societies. I'm your host, Professor Nick Bisley, Executive Director of Latrobe Asia. Joining me today on the line from Beijing is Dr. Jim Leibold, Senior Lecturer in Chinese Politics and Asian Studies here at Latrobe University. In today's podcast, we look at the popular protests in Hong Kong, their origins, how they've developed and how they may play out. So Jim, nearly week three of the protests in Hong Kong. Why don't you let us know, just to begin with, where these came from? What was the origin to this mass protest? What's caused it and uh, what are its underlying dynamics? Yeah, well, it's uh, been a long time in the making, briefly speaking. It uh, goes back to uh, the 1984 joint statement between the uh, UK and the PRC, which uh, outlined the uh, situation on which uh, Hong Kong would be returned to Chinese sovereignty in 1997. At the crux of the controversy is... uh, the provision that eventually the chief executive of Hong Kong, which is the the top political bureaucrat, would be elected through democratic uh, principles as well as universal suffrage. This provision was put into the basic law, kind of the foundational constitutional document that governs Hong Kong society under the People's Republic of China. And in it, Article 45 states very clearly that the ultimate aim uh, for the selection of the chief executive is that of universal suffrage, and also said it should be done in accordance with democratic uh, procedures. But it's also ambiguous because it also speaks about the chief executive being elected by a nominating committee. And essentially, since 97, individuals inside Hong Kong as well as Party members in Beijing have been kind of debating how this is to proceed. And the latest protests really got started a couple months ago when um, the National People's Congress, the top legislative body in Beijing, made a determination that the chief executive in 2017 would be elected using universal suffrage, but it was interpreted in a way in which Beijing would still through this nominating committee, would still be able to approve any candidate that would then be elected by the populace in Hong Kong. So a lot of people in Hong Kong feel like this is a, um, a kind of backtracking on a promise that was initially set forward in the basic law. Yeah, so when the deal was struck in, in uh, the really mid-80s, this famous formula of one country, two systems, was put into place in 97 when it occurred. And do you think the view in Hong Kong is that that deal, i.e. what it means to have a different system, is being eroded? There's a number of things. I mean, first thing that I think is really important to point out is that Hong Kong itself is a very divided society. Divisions in terms of economic wealth, you know, you've got a Gini coefficient of over over 50%. You've got a generation gap, particularly among under 30s. There's very weak identification with the PRC, with any form of Chinese identity. There's a strong sense of Hong Kong and unique Hong Kong identity. 
But then you've got business uh, tycoons who've made a fortune off of uh, closer ties to the PRC. And so Hong Kong itself is divided, but certainly amongst, you know, I mean, it's hard to put a finger on what percentage we're talking about, but at least over 50% of Hong Kong society feel like since uh, the handover in 97 that their kind of unique way of life is slowly being encroached upon by, you know, this uh, PRC bagamoth. And so there have been a number of incidences, and this has kind of come to a head here most recently in this debate over what it means to have universal suffrage of the uh, chief executive. Because yeah, it's it's on the back of that 2012 protest, isn't it, where there had been an effort to put in place what was this patriotic education, or I can't remember the, the exact phrase for it, but basically some PRC educational propaganda into the uh, education system in Hong Kong. There were two previous incidences. In 2003, there was uh, widespread demonstrations and debate over the implementation of something called Article 23. It was a provision in the basic law that required the local government to pass some type of security law. The original draft had a provision for anti-sedition, and there were large debates and then demonstrations, and eventually the Hong Kong government uh, scrapped that law. They put it aside. The chief executive at the time, Chen Shihua, uh, resigned, as did the uh, security minister, Regina Yip. Uh, so that happened in 2003, and then again in 2012, what you're talking about, the Hong Kong government said they would implement mandatory patriotic education uh, classes in all the schools, large demonstrations. Again, I actually was in Hong Kong at that time, and uh, you know people flooded onto the streets in tens of thousands. Uh, and once again, the government backed down. So... You can understand why the students now feel like these demonstrations might lead uh, somewhere, because twice previously they've demonstrated and they've managed to get the government to sort of back down. But the difference here, and I think it's a really important one, is they're not dealing with the Hong Kong government per se. They're dealing with uh, Beijing now. It was Beijing, it was the National People's Congress that made this determination on the provisions on which the chief executive would be elected in, in, in 2017. You're dealing with a very different creature in Beijing and this new leader, Xi Jinping, who uh, is very reticent to uh, back down. So you're at a kind of a standstill right now. At present, I think Xi is uh, willing to allow the chief executive, Xi Leong, to handle this. I think he realized the stakes of any intervention uh, by Beijing are quite high. At present, it seems unclear what the end game is here. How, how is this going to, to end? So do you think this is the, the first real test of Xi Jinping's leadership, at least from an international point of view, the first big public sort of test of his resolve? It certainly is a, a massive test. You know, he's, he's encountered other tests, uh, and he's certainly come to office as possibly the the strongest president and, and party secretary since perhaps Deng Xiaoping. And I think this really, for his administration, kind of came out of left field. It could have been anticipated, but they certainly, since coming to power, have certainly taken a tough line on Hong Kong in the summer. They issued a, a, a white paper on Hong Kong that essentially said that, you know, Hong Kong continues to exist uh, at the behest of, of Beijing and the Chinese Communist Party and just another city within the PRC. You know, it's going to be a big test. I mean, he's in a very difficult position. Certainly he wants to be strong on this issue, and I, I don't think there's any room for him to back down because um, he worries about the message it might send to others across China as well as uh, those in the periphery of Xinjiang and Tibet. 
as well as the issue of Taiwan and the South China Seas and East China Seas. He's a kind of Putin-esque kind of strongman. And so there's no room to back down here. But at the same time, how do you resolve this issue? I mean, he's really looking to um, see Wai Leong and the Hong Kong uh, government to find a way to uh, resolve this. But uh, if the students and other protesters don't back down, it seems that some type of uh, use of force is inevitable. But hopefully that is done by the Hong Kong police without the intervention of the, the large uh, PLA contingency. Yeah, it would seem to me that if, if that does occur, if the crackdown is coming, and by the sounds of what you said about Xi Jinping and the stakes that he's got in this, it, it seems that unless the protesters back down, this is an inevitability. But it would seem that politically for Beijing, the best thing to do would be it's the Hong Kong people doing it, not the PLA. From your view of the actual protest itself, you know, it's been a, quite an unusual and very kind of contemporary social protest. It, it seems to be quite distinctive in a lot of ways. What, what sort of caught your eye about the protests so far? Well, in, in some ways, it's not that dissimilar to the protests that occurred in Beijing and elsewhere across China in, in 1989. And I think that's a kind of scary parallel that, you know, it's kind of the elephant in the room that everyone's aware of. But I see some similarities and differences. I mean, the similarities are the fact that this is a broad coalition of different people demonstrating. Uh, it really got started, a pushback after the global financial crisis amongst a kind of coalition of sort of socialist uh, groups. But then, you know, you got now teachers involved, uh, as well as uh, pro-democracy legislators. And what really kind of uh, added new momentum to uh, these demonstrations was uh, about a week ago when a whole different coalition of students uh, joined the, the demonstrations. That really changes the dynamics, because here we're talking about young kids at the forefront using uh, civil disobedient uh, tactics, uh, you know, blocking entrance to uh, roads and government buildings. And, and so in that regard, it's not that dissimilar to the scenes in Beijing in 1989. You've got a very fluid, very diverse group of protesters, no clear leadership, no really clear aims. I mean, they're calling for the chief executive to step down. They're asking for a sort of reinterpretation of uh, the basic law. Like the calls for democracy in, in 89, it's, it's not really clear how these things would be implemented. The difference is here, we're dealing with very strong leadership. Uh, wasn't in place in uh, 1989. The question now is how, how do you bring them to an end? And you know, you've seen various tactics. The first was to go hard with tear gas and pepper spray by the uh, anti-riot police in, in Hong Kong. And then they, a couple of days ago, they appeared to sort of call in the, the triads. It seems that each of those, you know, the tear gas and the triads have just kind of galvanized the, the students further. It's not clear as we sit, you know, here on Monday, what's going to happen. The chief executive called for um, the students to clear the way um, this morning. My understanding from, you know, just checking Twitter before we started our, our conversation is that students are still on the ground and they're, they're allowing government officials to go back to work, but they're still blocking roads. They've determined not to give up. Yeah, from what I can see, it seems like there's been a few tactical retreats in the sort of far-flung parts of the protest, because you've got the ones on Kowloon side and Mong Kok and elsewhere that seem to be scaled down, whereas I think the main site, as it were, in Central, if anything's been beefed up. So at the moment, it doesn't look like there's any compromise from, from the student point of view. I'm curious, what's the view in Beijing? I mean, you're there, and I know you have access to, to information that your average citizen doesn't have, but I'm just wondering, how's this 
is this being talked about? Do people know about it? Oh, it's a good question. I mean, I've just got back from Taiwan. As the Taiwan people were, were all abuzz about this, obviously with a bit of fear of uh, what that might mean for their relationship with Beijing. But here, certainly not on the front pages of any of the newspapers. It's not being covered, censored on social media. Some of this stuff inevitably has to filter through, particularly over the border into uh, Guangdong, I would suspect. But the party state is doing its best to kind of censor and block this and keep this uh, separate. I mean, they've made some statements in the People's Daily, in China Daily, but these are statements that are issued uh, towards the reading public outside of the PRC. So I'm not aware of any official media coverage here inside of uh, Beijing in Chinese. I think what they're terrified by the prospects that this could lead to similar demonstrations, not only in the periphery of Xinjiang and, and Tibet, but I think even more whirling in Guangzhou or uh, even here in Beijing. I don't see that happening thus far, whether that's because there's a lack of information or a lack of sympathy, it's hard to gauge, really. Yeah, the international uh, reaction is also kind of interesting, and I think particularly in Hong Kong, you've seen some divisions by those with a stake in Hong Kong. On the one hand, you've got the kind of cosmopolitan elites who are supporting the pro-democracy movements, but you've seen these curious statements coming from business groups, particularly Western business groups, like the Australian Chamber of Commerce in Hong Kong, denouncing the protesters, telling them to get out of the streets, telling them to let Hong Kong get on with business. And, and the sort of international reaction to this is not playing quite in the standard pro-China, anti-China way that we've seen other protests play out. Have you got a sense of what that sort of international perspective is? It's very similar to the way, I guess, Hong Kong society has uh, reacted. It's divided. I mean, on the one hand, people are quite sympathetic to the maintenance of Hong Kong autonomy and some kind of separate Hong Kong identity. But at the same time, people realize that if this continues to go on, or even if there is a crackdown, this is going to devastate the Hong Kong economy. Um, you've already had the mainland cancel tour groups, and tourism is a major source of income. But at the same time, the Hang Seng, the stock index has declined. You know, this has been going on for quite a long time and has caused disruption in the, the Hong Kong economy. And people realize, you know, I mean, the stakes are high here. If the PLA were to crack down, this would decimate Hong Kong and its really kind of important role as a kind of financial gateway into the PRC. And so the stakes are high, not only for business folk in Hong Kong, but also the international business community. But I don't think anybody wants to see Hong Kong descend into chaos. And no one wants to see a repeat of uh, the crackdown that occurred in 1989 in Beijing. Yeah, it seems that one of the other risks that China's got in terms of how it responds is it does seem to care about its international public image in a way that perhaps it, it, it didn't used to, at least in the sense that China's been trying to play this game of being peaceful rise and we're not we're 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 developing carefully and we're all you know very poor and we're not we're not a threat to anyone and all that sort of stuff. And I think that message gets much harder to sell if you've got a crackdown in Hong Kong and the people in Taiwan are sitting there and going, So tell us again why we should go down the Hong Kong route for reunification and that sort of thing. So I think there's an added sense of complexity to how Beijing may respond. Yeah, definitely. And you know, she doesn't want this right now. This is kind of an unwelcome intrusion on his larger agenda, mainly domestically focused. But also he's, he's brought a more robust diplomacy. It's a more confident kind of strident China. But it's also a, a China that wants to be a part of the sort of international community, a leader in some ways. And so 
this puts him in a very difficult bind because on one hand he can't back down, he's got to look strong. After all, Hong Kong is a part of China. But at the same time, look at the implications uh, for China and its place in the world after 89. It's certainly the last thing he'd want is uh, once again to be cast out as a pariah in the international community, which would be exactly what would happen if um, the PLA was called in. And so I think everybody's just hoping that the police will be able to deal with it internally. And I suspect they will. I mean, at some, some stage, either it's going to peter out or the police are going to have to start arresting people and sort of hauling people away. But it's not going to end this, this problem. And we've got great polling data that's being done by Michael DeGallier at Baptist University, this Hong Kong transition project. He's been tracking the attitudes of particularly under 30s and under 40s in Hong Kong. And he shows a sort of a growing dissatisfaction with encroachment by the PRC, a strengthening of Hong Kong identity. That's not going to change. Yeah, it seems that given where he is in his presidential term, uh, or his term of leadership at any rate of the party, I think he's got no choice but to be pretty firm on this, although there's a bit of latitude for precisely how you demonstrate firmness and the like. But as you said, I think even if we get this one resolved peacefully now, there's more coming over the next five to ten years. What they need to think about is the sort of face-saving you know, method at this stage. And one way this could occur is to get rid of Siwai Leong. He is deeply unpopular. He came to power in 2012 and was immediately involved with this heels of this patriotic education uh, protests and you know there's all kinds of allegations of corruption he supposedly had this house on the peak that violated planning regulations there's even talk that he's a sort of underground chinese communist but he's unpopular he's unpopular the way he's handled with the economy he's unpopular amongst the students i mean that's what happened the tong chi hua after the um, article 23 demonstrations resigned claiming health issues I mean, so there is a way here, if he were to step down, you know, kind of health issues or something like that, rather than being seen to be removed by Beijing, that may kind of mollify the students and the protesters, uh, at least in the short term. In the long term, I, we can just look back over the last couple of decades and these things have, have come up repeatedly. I can't see it sort of going away. All right, Jim, I think that's all we've got time for, but fantastic for your insights from Beijing and uh, we'll speak to you again doubtless soon about these events and, and in the future. No problem. Happy to join you. You've been listening to Asia Rising, a podcast of the Trobe Asia. You can follow Jim at Twitter at jleibold, L-E-I-B-O-L-D, and you can follow me on Twitter as well, at Nick Bisley. If you like this podcast, why not subscribe at iTunes Store or on SoundCloud. I'm Nick Bisley. Thanks for listening. <laughs>